Amen. Please be seated. We uh, turn in the Word of God to John chapter 12. After a break since, well, what was it, last summer, beginning of last summer, we come back to the Gospel of John. We had a series on the Ten Commandments. We had pure law. We come back to the Gospel of John to have pure gospel. Uh, and also, of course, to learn how we might walk in truth. Before the Lord, we come to uh, John 12, uh, verse 1, and I'd like to read down for you to verse 26. And six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead, was. There they made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for three hundred denarii and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box. And he used to take what was put in it. But Jesus said, Let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial, for the poor you have with you always, but me you do not have always. Now a great many of the Jews knew that he was there, and they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. The next day, a great multitude that had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples didn't understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that he had done these things. They had done these things to him. Therefore, the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of his tomb and raised him from the dead bore witness. For this reason, the people also met him because they heard that he had done this sign. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, You see that we are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. They came to Philip, who was, at Bethsa- who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn Andrew and Philip told Jesus. But Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. 
If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my Father will honor. Amen. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, we pray indeed that you would honor us with an understanding of these words of our Lord and of the ways that we are ourselves to follow him, to be where he is, that where the master is, there might the servant be also. Our Father, we pray that our life might also overflow in loving devotion and that the extravagance of our lives would be our joy and to the glory of your name. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Well, in his uh, to the, uh, rather, I'm sorry, in his Through the Bible radio broadcast that many of you have heard over the years, Dr. Vernon McGee used to speak of each new book he started as the greatest book of the Bible. We turn now to the greatest book of the Bible. And then the next month, the same thing. We turn now to the greatest book of the Bible. Let's face it, they're all great. But there are certain books of the Bible which do seem, don't they, to stand out. And the Gospel of John is surely one of those books. It's perhaps the most important document in the whole literature of the world. And I suppose that if we were going to be left on a desert island with only one book of the Bible to keep us company... If I polled any large group of Christians, I'm pretty sure that they would always be in favor of the Gospel of John. Although there are many great witnesses to Jesus Christ, the Gospel of John is so precious for many, and it has brought more people to follow Christ, surely, than any other. And John says, that's the reason I'm writing to you. These things are written, he says, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. He not only presents Jesus in whom we believe, but all along the way, he also gives us a number of pictures or illustrations of what a living faith in Jesus is, what it means in order to teach us in flesh and blood. What is it to believe? How is it to change us? We're also shown what it means not to believe in Jesus, for that matter, and what unbelief does. And surely we have both illustrations before us today. So I need to mention one more thing before we begin. Some of you may have already thought, I I think I've heard this uh, some other time. Yes, a few years earlier in Galilee, in Jesus' ministry, there was this other woman who was also uh, anointed, who also anointed Jesus' feet with fragrant oil and even wet his feet with her tears. That is recorded for us in Luke chapter 7. There's many differences, so don't confuse the two events in your mind. That earlier woman in Luke 7 had been a very sinful woman and had come to ask Jesus for forgiveness. And you remember that Jesus said to the Pharisee then at the table, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Well, this is a couple years later. But what we have before us is the Lord's friend Mary, who lives in Bethany, not Galilee, whose brother Lazarus has just been raised from the dead. These are two different women. But in another way, maybe they're not quite so different at all. Here are two women who both just throw caution to the wind, not caring what others thought, even making a a kind of spectacle of themselves before others. 
to express their love and devotion and joy in Jesus. So let's cover this passage under the two headings of devotion and deception. And then we'll think a little more about what it means for you and me for today, okay? First, devotion. This chapter begins with a dinner in Bethany, just a few days before Jesus' death. And there at the table sits Lazarus, who had died, as we are reminded in this chapter, not that we forgot from just the previous chapter, but just to emphasize it, who had died and whom Jesus had raised from the dead. There he sits. There he sits, healthy and strong and well, eating with Jesus. And Mary, you can imagine, is so overwhelmed to think of what Jesus has done for them, what he's meant for them, what he's given them. You can imagine her looking at Jesus and looking at her brother and just being overcome with joy and and gratitude and wonder that such a thing had happened before so many mourners, her brother, was restored to her. Mary just had to do something. She had to do something extravagant, something that would express the depth of her feeling, the enormous gratitude of her joy and love. And as one man put it, she just had to get the most expensive thing in the house and break it and pour it on the Lord, or her heart would break instead. So she did. And we have this uh, extravagant gift, uh, this uh, picture, kind of like in his own way, David leaping and dancing before the ark with all of his might when it came up to Jerusalem. Remember that? His wife, Michal, said, David, your, your behavior is embarrassing. You're undignified. But David just had to express his joyful devotion. As he says on another occasion also, he's, he's not going to offer a sacrifice that cost him nothing. Oh, no. The more extravagant, the better. Um, Mary had some extremely expensive perfume, and it's possible she was even in that business. This is not your ordinary fragrance, the kind that you and I buy. <clears throat> I mean, I go to the perfume counter and say, could you, so, could you show me something really cheap? And uh, they, they, just, they just show me a mirror, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Uh, this is not the kind I buy. So uh, this is an aromatic uh, herb from the high Himalayan pasture lands of India and Tibet that had to be shipped a great distance on camelback. It was world famous. John makes a point of telling us it's pure nard, not, not a, a less expensive mixture. This is what you make other things from. We're even told the price. It would go for 300 denarii, which is more than a Roman soldier would make in a whole year, maybe about $40,000 in today's money. And you're like, Wow. She poured that on Jesus. I mean, when you think of it that way, we imagine ourselves <laughs> with the same thoughts as Judas. That's a lot of money. Well, uh, Mary was obviously not from a poor family, but this perfume remains, even for Mary, a very, very costly gift. And it was Isaac Watts who wrote in his hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, that were the whole realm of nature mine. That were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. And it's something of this that we see in the passage, such a gift. And this is the first thing I'd like us to take from the passage. That no matter what form or direction your Christian life may take, There's always to be something wonderful, glorious, extravagant for all who believe that when we are as we ought to be, 
Our hearts are so full. We, we are just so thankful, so much in wonder. To believe in Jesus, as we read earlier, is to enter into life. Life that has new joys, new powers, new desires, new understanding, new opinions, new hopes, new fears, and new delights. It's the most profound thing that can ever happen to you. Jesus calls it nothing less than going from death to life, or a new birth, or a resurrection from the dead to life eternal, or salvation. I know that this is true. I have experienced it. I do not experience it every day as I ought. But, Lord, I believe, and I know that this is the greatest thing that could ever possibly happen to know such a one as this. So, this change, which our Lord says must take place, is no slight one or superficial one. You must be born again, he says. Christ makes the most extravagant demands. You see how he puts this uh, in verse 25. He who loves his life will lose it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. Where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my Father will honor. That believing in Christ is the greatest change that can come upon you, the greatest power that can enter into a life like yours and mine. It makes the most tremendous results in the life. And for joy, we then must ask, what shall I render to the Lord, as the psalm has? What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits toward me? And when people wonder why we do what we do, what possibly can motivate us, and they observe our lives and the choices they make that we make, they must be driven finally to conclude the love of Christ must compel them. Look again at Mary and see it's not out of compulsion. He isn't even asked anything from her. It's out of such love and joy and devotion. And so it is for us, out of love and joy and devotion, that we are ready to enlist all that we have, all that we are, as Watts said. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. And this even adds a a daring, even a heroic element to Christian living as we rise above ourselves. Because we're all in. That a life of faith in Christ is to issue in the most joyful, extravagant devotion. Point one. And as an illustration of that, before we go on, uh, I was reading again this week of Francis of Assisi, who you know, always wanted to be a knight growing up. He wanted to be crowned with glory. He wanted to do great exploits in battle. And one day, he was riding his horse outside the city, and he, he saw somebody coming toward him on the road. And it wasn't maybe as he would have hoped a knight of their ancient enemy, Perugia. But instead, as he got closer, he realized it was a leper. Francis had always detested the sight of people with leprosy, but, but something happened this day. Something that changed his life, that, that God suddenly struck his heart, he wrote. And he saw Christ in this poor man. And Francis leaped off his horse and rushed to the leper and threw his arms around him and emptied his wallet, giving him everything he had to give. Then he got on his horse and started to ride off. And he wrote that when he gazed back, there was no man standing in the road. But that was the day 
that forever changed Francis's life by the grace of God. And what a life issued forth. This remarkable man, ex extravagant as he was in his life in so many ways, he saw Jesus in poor and afflicted people and lived with people in leprosy. He fed them. He washed them. He gently wiped and bandaged their wounds. And Francis became this extraordinary man with extravagant acts of devotion, more than the vast majority of Christians before or since. And he inspired many to a life of devotion. And what was his secret? Seeing Jesus in everyone in need. And we too would see Jesus, as the text says, in a different context. But truly, Jesus speaks about dying to oneself and saying, if anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. That, that Jesus is worthy of a life of extravagant devotion. It's what we want to give him. It's what we wish we could summon more. We wish we could be, be better in our weakest of days. Jesus receives Mary's perfume, you notice, as a gift fit for a king's burial, according to the embalming practices of the Jews of that day, that they would pour oil and fragrant herbs upon the dead. Jesus knew something else was happening that day in God's providence. Mary's extraordinary gift was preparing the king to die. And on that very next morning, Jesus would enter Jerusalem for his last time. Our first point, devotion, acts, and a life filled with joyful, extravagant devotion must rise from the joy of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. Can you see it? It's woven throughout the rest of the passage. I only gave you some. But there's another note here that we have to come to, which is deception. Deception. Mary's generous love is then met with the greedy anger of a thief. Judas asks, why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Uh, voters take note, Judas certainly wasn't the last to hide his own greed behind a thin veil of concern for the poor. No need to say amen, we all know it's true. The objection sounds good, but John then later realized what was behind it. Judas was the treasurer of the group. He had been helping himself to the money, and everything like this that happens, he sees as his loss. And this shows us the nature of his deception. Judas is, like a great many worldly Christians of Christ, uh, following Christ today. Following Jesus, they think, is about what you might get from him. Few will put it in such crass terms. Many won't even realize it. They deceive themselves. Deception, sin is a deceiving thing. People may be full of the joy of the Lord, but then something happens. Some loss, perhaps. Some trial. And they are shaken or become disillusioned, disappointed with the Lord, and even go away. Uh, until three years ago, Kate Bowler was one of the foremost scholars of, in the world on the prosperity gospel. Uh, professor at Duke and uh, uh, author of the book Blessed and a uh, number of scholarly papers and so forth. She says, the prosperity gospel encourages some, especially leaders in the movement, to travel in private jets and to, have, to revel in multi-million dollar homes as evidence of God's love. But 
from personal experience, she says, look, a great many people caught up in the prosperity gospel are frankly poor. They want help. They want an escape. Maybe they want some relief from the wounds of their past or the pains of the present, or they want God to deliver them from their sicknesses or the things that are ripping their lives apart at the seams. And there's no reason that we shouldn't want that, so don't get me wrong. But people are in the movement who, who are praying and believing that if they just live right and do the right things and say the right words, that they are going to be hashtag blessed in the way that they want to be. And it turns out when they don't get it that they find out that they are following Jesus, not for who he is, but for what they wanted from him. Now, of course, he does give so much. See point one. It's, it's, it's not that they're wrong even in what they desire from him. And, and sometimes the Lord is pleased to give even the most remarkable answers. We see that in this passage, right? But, but sometimes people, they don't get what they want. And that is what causes them to stumble and to reveal even to themselves this deception. And like Kate Bowler, who a couple years ago, got a stage four cancer diagnosis. Such people find that their faith was sustained by the gifts and not the giver. Or maybe the hope of the gift and not hope in the giver. They find that their joy was not in the Lord, but what they were wanting or hoping to receive all along. And this becomes the cause of a thousand other betrayals. Because of this deception, following Jesus, because of what you can get from him. And just as every true disciple's life must issue in some way with evident, extravagant devotion, every false disciple's life must be marked in some way by a self-sacrifice, a self excuse me, a self-seeking mercenary spirit. That if I'm getting something from Jesus, I'm with him. If I'm hoping to receive, I'm even careful to obey him. But when I don't get it, I need to do what's best for me. Because he's number two, but I'm number one. This theme continues, you notice, through our passage, which is why I wanted to read on. In the very next scene, what do we see? Crowds are singing Hosanna to their king. The same crowds who, a few days later, under the pressure and watchful eye of their rulers, will be crying, crucify him. Or down to verse 42, which we haven't read. But nevertheless, even among the rulers, we read, many believed in Jesus, but, there's always that but, because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Uh, John, you see, is a, mas a master at uh, painting these portraits. And, uh, you know, the other gospel writers point out, it actually wasn't just Jesus that was shocked at this. Even the disciples were asking what, what was going on, right? So, uh, Paul, uh, John, our author, wants us to see these two figures side by side, this contrast, Mary and Judas. 
side by side. And the faith of those who will worship Christ joyfully and devotedly for all that he is and all that he's done. And those who are actually seeking to serve themselves, whose life is deep in this world, and who will not lose it for Christ's sake. Over time, such great differences must become plain. And maybe like, like me, you went a long way down that wrong road, and you realized you're not getting a life, you're, lo- you're, you're losing a life. That life is not to be found in putting yourself as number one, and Jesus is number two. Jesus says that there must be this difference between the one who will lose his life in this world for his sake uh, and those who will not. The difference won't always be so stark, of course, as this portrait, and it will take many forms, but it must come, and that will unmask the deception, point two. Jesus says the one who loves his life in this world is going to lose it, We've given up our own lives as Christians as it's defined and measured by this world and any self-love and self-interest. Many, of course, will want Jesus to be king and to cheer him as king when he does what kings are supposed to do, to give people, to give us victory and peace and prosperity. And they'll be glad to cheer with the multitudes, Hosanna, Hosanna to the king. But then the cross the cost of discipleship, and they say, uh-uh, I'm number one, he's number two. Unless you mis- mistake me, let me make a couple things clear. We do receive everything from the Lord, and it's only right for us to desire from him all that is good, and to pray for what is good, to thank him for it, and he is so good to us, so you don't misunderstand me, and he is pleased to give us abundantly what we need, and then so much more, God's children should ask for their daily bread from him and receive it. But what if he took away those things from you? Like Job. If he took away everything, would that make the difference? Would it change the way you felt? For the Gospel of John reminds us again and again that God's supreme gift to us, which he's already given... And our supreme joy in whom we've already received is Jesus. He is our treasure. A treasure that's hidden in a field which for joy a man will sell all that he has and buy it. And, and now it's like the old Puritan perhaps in prison uh, we were talking about this week who was given water and a crust of bread and said all this in Jesus too. <laughs> because friends, God has already given us so much more than we can ask or imagine. I mean, to become heirs of God and co-heirs of Christ and to know the Lord and the world and all that that means. He's given us himself. He's given us himself. To know him is to live. Uh, G.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, tells about a, a professor friend of his. He was walking with one day and he was, the professor was explaining how because of his faith in Christ, he was, as the English say, sent to Coventry. Uh, that is to say, he didn't make professor. He was, his, his career was over in terms of advancement. But he says, I have known the Lord. He wouldn't trade places. He wouldn't trade places. This is the true joy and devotion of faith. Beware the mercenary deception 
of even deceiving yourself, of loving the gift more than the giver. Loving yourself more than the Savior. Now in the final part here, I'd like to practically apply this to ourselves. I want you to apply this teaching to the trials in your life. This teaching on extravagant devotion to the trials that you are now experiencing. If you are, at this moment, having to bear up under trial, please understand that you have been given an opportunity, a great opportunity, even a special gift, though I realize at the moment it may seem as the furthest thing from a gift, that you have been given an opportunity to express your devotion to the Lord in something very costly to you, something very precious in the sight of the Lord, that you have the opportunity to perhaps bear a cross for his sake patiently, humbly, graciously, full of faith and love, remembering what you have received in Jesus. And you have the opportunity to say in whatever want or lack that you are experiencing, all this in Jesus too. You know from Job that this is right. You know how much costly devotion is a true mark of faith, even when other marks mislead us. And this is why you can't live any more on yesterday's faith than you can on yesterday's air. Because we're not actually living on faith, we're living on Christ. We're living on Christ. And dear brothers and sisters, do not say, I wanted more from the Lord for this than this. And stumble, which was the way of Judas and all who are like him. Instead, you give glory to God and you express your devotion to him in the way that matters most in your life right now by doing what is difficult and painful and even requiring a great sacrifice with grace and love, remembering what you have. And very soon now, you will thank God. You will thank God that you had something precious to offer Him. And perhaps what was broken was not a flask, but your heart. Very soon you will thank God that you were enabled to offer to the Lord that which cost you something. For He is worthy. Maybe you have the struggles of poor health, a poor marriage, or just being poor. Maybe it's some act of duty or obedience or some conflict with sin, some loneliness or fear. Maybe it's living and working day after day among people who despise your Christian faith. Whatever it is, I want you to look at it today in a new way. You have been given this opportunity to express something of your great devotion in a costly way even if it means the breaking not of a flask, but of your heart. To express your love and thankfulness and your joy in the Lord in such a way that says to the world, He is everything, and He must increase and I must decrease. And I would not trade places with anyone if I would lose Him 
And you will very soon, as I say, be more thankful for that opportunity and trial than for all the pleasure, comfort, and success that you could ever enjoy in this world, for Jesus will become more precious to you. And you will lose nothing, brothers or sisters. Even a cup of cold water, Jesus says, is going to receive his reward. And every loss that's born for Christ's sake in this world, which we must hate as it is, nevertheless, he says, I will repay it a hundredfold. So take your imagination away now and picture yourself sitting at that banquet with the Lord and Lazarus and everyone else at the great feast in the kingdom of God. That great banquet to which we long to be seated. And Christ there with you and let your heart swell and be overcome with the love and the joy and the thanksgiving. And look at the life that he has brought from death. Look at the wonder, the astonishing thing that has happened. There are you and the Lord and all that he's done for you and brothers and sisters. And see that life has come from death from this man. And be overcome by all that he's been to you and all that he's done for you and all that he's given for you. And then go back and express your devotion this day in a costly way. And all of you can envy Mary. Envy her that she had the opportunity with this $40,000 of spikenard in the house to be able to express some extravagant devotion for Christ and envy her welcome into the kingdom of God. For it was right. It was right. In conclusion, it is the end of the Lord's life. And in this chapter, Jesus says, the hour has come. But the hour hasn't just come for him. It's come for you too. The hour for you to lose your life in order that you might begin to live, truly. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And unless that kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies... It remains alone, but if it dies, it's going to produce a great harvest. Where I am, there my servant will be also. Anyone who serves me, him my father will honor. It is time to to start seeing the division in this chapter, in this portrait of John, and to exchange the praise of men, which is temporary, for the praise of God that does not go away. To start living your life in real joy, in the glory of God, in a life of service to others for his sake, speaking the words of life, despite the pain and persecution that will inevitably bring to bring salvation to a dying world just like Jesus. And so there is and there ought to be in every Christian such extravagance, such immoderation, this sense of the rightness and beauty pouring ourselves out before the Lord, it, it simply must be expressed from time to time, just as another person's betrayal must appear in an unbelieving life from time to time. Either way, Jesus provokes great feeling of the heart, and that feeling must be expressed either way. And I know that following Jesus will come at the cost of acceptance among others, as we read in this chapter. Sometimes that means forsaking a job. Paul could easily have remained 
a prominent and successful Jewish ruler. He was well-respected. He was one of the brightest rising stars of the day. And he counted it all, he says, as dung in order that he might gain Christ. For what is Christ compared to all that the world could offer me, he said. So he suffered the loss of all things, but he gained Christ. And he was far better off. And the love of Christ, the love of Christ is what sets you free. And if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. And the emphasis of John here, this is what believing in him must give us. A right perspective that not only focuses and changes your life, it, it makes it purposeful and richer and fuller, even extravagant, even sometimes daring and heroic. When you hate your life in this world truly to gain it, something is going to come of it. Something beautiful. Yes, there's a great cost to discipleship that Jesus speaks out, but every man and woman, boy and girl here with Christian blood throbbing through your veins who hear the Lord's summons in those words, you know how right it is for him to demand this, and this is what we want to give. It is what we know we ought to give him to be true in our lives in this world. Oh, that they rose to more of this savor. Oh, that the perfume and the fragrance of such a gift would fill the world. The message of the gospel itself is, after all, the message of a very great love and a heroic life lived for those in desperate need to bring life. People who have experienced the gospel themselves are so changed by it into gospel people. So, brothers and sisters, he who loves his life will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, let my servant there be also. If anyone serves me, him my Father will honor. The Lord meant those as challenging words to stir us, to wake us, to inspire us, to make us want to be found among those of whom such deeds of devotion are recorded in service in whatever we have to give to our Savior and our King. It is the true joy and measure and calling of every Christian. And we know we don't want anything less. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, if we were used to begin to live in such a way that remotely approached what our Lord has said in this passage, it would certainly set the town on its ear. It would be a perfume that filled many rooms. It is precisely this division of our hearts as we feel in ourselves a battle between Mary and Judas, tugged toward comfort and security and acceptance in this world so that it continually hinders us every day from being what you died for us to be and doing what you have called us to do, that we would be able to go from enjoying the fleeting pleasures of this world such as they are to loving and rejoicing and glorying in you and in Christ alone. So we ask by your Holy Spirit today 
we would receive the great challenge of this chapter to see exactly where we need to go, what we need to do, from the most mature believer to the least mature. We pray that there would be something beautiful, something memorable, something glorious that comes from every life here, which is built on the foundation of Jesus. And we pray for any whose life has not been built on that foundation, perhaps whose hope was just lost, whose lamp just went out, who just found that there is a life that they are about to lose. We pray that coming to Christ even now, that they might find solid ground, eternal life, a hope and a joy and a glory, a devotion and a delight far greater than anything the world can give or take away. Oh yes, Lord, may some here this very day be praying this with me and rejoicing in you and saying thank God for his life that I now share.